Welcome to the Grazing Grass Podcast, Episode 5. Rotational grazing in the grand scheme of things is like the cello in this orchestra. You're listening to the Grazing Grass Podcast, where we're helping grass farmers produce forages for livestock. On today's episode, we have Eli Mack of Mack Farms. He's going to talk about his farm with Scottish Highland cattle and codlin sheep and a few other things. Also, he's going to talk about his journey to become a more holistic manager of his farm. It's a really good episode. He's also a good sport. We recorded an episode a few weeks ago, but the audio did not turn out. So we were able to get Eli back on here for today's show, and I think you're really going to enjoy it. So with that, let's get to the show. Well, Eli, we want to welcome you to the Grazing Grass Podcast. Thank you, Cal. Happy to be with you. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your operation? Sure, yeah. Uh, my name is Eli. I'm, I'm 26. I'm kind of operating our small family farm in western Pennsylvania. We're located in Brush Valley, uh, approximately an hour and a half east of Pittsburgh, um, just to kind of get you in the right ballpark there. Um, on that current 20 acres, I've got some things in the works to expand that uh, land base. But right now I got the 20 acres that I'm working with and I've got Scottish Highland cattle, a few Katahdin hair sheep. I run several batches of meat chickens uh, through the warmer part of the year. I have egg layers all through the year and uh, just started turkeys and pigs this uh, this past season. So. Some things we've been doing for a few years and other things we're just dabbling in for the first time. And we're, we're excited to try new things and find the niche there with uh, other enterprises as we go. What's the weather doing for you currently? Right now, we're swinging back into our cool season, uh, we're getting colder and rainier. We had a abnormally dry summer. Uh, we're just August and July just held out on us. They didn't didn't get us uh, much rainfall at all. Uh, usually we have a pretty even, consistent distribution of precipitation. We were talking earlier, I think we're in that like 42 inches per year range, um, but it just held out. We didn't get much rain. And so now that's starting to show as we come down the home stretch for grazing. There hasn't been a whole lot of regrowth, um, just kind of dry and, and brown. But right now we're we're getting more and more precipitation. Tomorrow we're getting two inches and things are cooling off. We had maybe one night that dipped below freezing so far, but that's going to that's gonna kick in pretty soon for us here. When's usually your first freeze? Yeah, we uh, first frost usually shows, first frost is usually in October, first, uh, first to the 10th is kind of the range where the frost shows. Oh, up. yes. Um, coming into November, any time after that, we can kind of dip down and get into those lower temperatures, especially overnight. Um Last year, I snuck through November pretty well as far as grazing goes. I even made it into the first part of December before we put out any hay bales. Uh, I was hoping to repeat that this year, but as dry as it was, I don't know that we'll we'll make it all the way. Um, if I hit, I think my I think my target date is November 26th. If I hit that, I'll be at 70% of the year grazing, which was my uh, my initial goal, just to get that far. Um, oh yeah. When I started grazing, doing the math, calculating that you only grazed for half the year and fed hay for half the year, that's like a, that's not a good feeling. So I've been trying to stretch that out and be very intentional about how far we make it into our, 
our winter season before we uh, supplement with hay and kind of shift gears that direction. Right. I I totally get that. And that hay is cost a lot more money than that grass. Up there. Absolutely. No doubt. Now, are you producing your own hay or are you buying hay? No, we're buying hay in. Um, we're we're kind of like Greg Judy and those those guys talk about. We're letting somebody else import the nutrients onto our farm. We're making every use that we can of of standing forage and vegetation, just trying to complete as many laps around the farm, and then we'll bring in hay uh, from uh, another local farm just down the road from us. Now, a question on that: How was your dad with that? Was he on board with that, or yeah. did it take some convincing? No, my dad's, he's a, he's a pretty, uh, ambitious, open-minded guy. He, uh, so we're, we're doing rotational grazing. We're kind of on our journey with holistic management and holistic plan grazing, just kind of starting into that. Uh, but my dad was, uh, was hinting at rotational grazing even before I was kind of on that scene. I was, I was still in high school and had a lot of things going on and I, I didn't think I had time to move the cows often enough to do that. And so I kind of scratched it, but he was, uh, he was definitely interested in that concept and he liked the, the, re, the rest and the regenerative aspect of doing rotation. Oh, yes. stuff. Um, so he, he was kind of ready for it. He was just waiting for me to have more time oh, on very good. To, to come on board with that. And together we've uh, jumped kind of both feet in that, in that race of uh, rotational grazing, holistic management. Very good. Uh, one reason I bring that up about what was your dad's views on it. I know myself, it's taken a little while to convince my dad, who okay. I run cattle with, to um, make that leap. But we're planning on next year not belling any hay. Yeah. And I'm, I'm pretty excited about that. That's cool. And like you said, bring those nutrients into our farm rather than moving them from one place on the farm to somewhere else right. using tractors. Right. And I, I think I, I get the, the highlight points of that. A book that's on my list to read I haven't read yet would be uh, Garish's Kick the Hay Habit. Uh, I haven't oh, yes. gotten around to reading that yet, but it's right along those lines of, you know, let's let's keep grazing as long as we can and let the hay come from somewhere else. And the description that some of those guys use as far as importing hay versus cutting your own hay off the land is kind of like mining the soil. You know, we're, we're taking off that top layer, that organic matter, but it doesn't get any return because the the livestock aren't there with their animal impact or their manure and it's not getting any dead vegetation knocked back down on it to kind of feed those mineral cycles. Um, so in their perspective, they view that in a way that we're, we're kind of cutting the soil short. We're taking a shortcut around it. Oh, yes. Um, so we're, we're trying to, to just follow suit. You know, I'm, I'm not a pioneer on any of these thoughts by any means, but I, I think those guys are pretty smart and they know what they're talking about. So I'm willing to take a few notes off of them. Yeah, they've they've done it a little bit longer than most of us in larger right. numbers. So, right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> now, what kind of forages do you have there? Yeah, this is something I've I've been working on. I need to hone my skill with identifying forages and plant species. Uh, we're we're not like a big farming family, so I didn't didn't grow up going out into the field and picking out you know this or that. Um, my dad's a chiropractor and. And we, he, he, he's happy to farm alongside me, but we're not the uh, generation after generation kind of farm. So we're learning a lot of things as we go. Um, one of the primary grasses that I have is reeds canary grass. We have some wet bottoms. We have a crick, you know, and 
in my region, we call it a creek. I know you guys might call <laughs> yeah. it a creek or whatever, but we have yeah, more a of a creek here, here but a creek works. Yeah, we're, we have a creek here. That's, that's what this one is. Um, <laughs> it runs right through the middle. It kind of divides the property in half. And in those wet bottom areas, this reeds canary grass just pops up. Um, and it uh, it comes on strong beginning of the season. It's not a great stockpile forage. This time of year, it's turning brown and the animals, hopefully if we can get them to knock it down, that's that's the best we can hope for with it. Just get it back to the soil surface. But uh, we make use of it while it's growing. It, it grows crazy tall if you let it go and we oh, let yes. them have every bit of it. Um, so that's the one that I can identify right off the bat for you is reeds canary grass. Um, other than that, we've got our clover species coming up nicely um and even moving our chicken tractors i noticed that that's the first thing that pops up behind the chickens is the clover um and it's it's going to be one of those things that's helping fix the soil back up after some some animal impact it's going to pop up it's going to spread uh horizontally a little bit before it shoots up just trying to help cover the the ground that they leave behind so we got the clovers um anything from timothy um little bit of what would that be? Uh, broom sedge. I actually have a plant identification app on my phone and I take pictures all the time so I can test myself and, and learn new species as I go. Uh, and I, I joked with you earlier, if I could make money off of being a goldenrod farmer, that's that's what I would do because <laughs> uh, right now we, we have a lot of goldenrod and I'm hoping to kind of foster more helpful, beneficial species and, and hopefully some of those things. Right serve their purpose and kind of dissipate over time. But right now I have a lot of goldenrod to, <laughs> to get under control. Right. Yeah. Now, do you have much fescue in your area or do you have it? Uh, not too much. I, I haven't seeded anything down or drilled anything. Um, at least to the point of me identifying it. I haven't, I haven't come across that fescue. Um, other guys that are, are doing grazing in my area, that's something that they're going to drill in and, and keep in the perennial mix over time. Um, I, I was initially afraid of fescue after a grazing conference I went to because they were talking about the endophytes, you know, and I was like, oh, oh yes, the endophytes, I'm, I'm not up for that level of management, you know, <laughs> so I just kind of put uh, fescue on the back burner, but I, I think we can work our way around it and that will probably get into the rotation here soon. Um, there was one area of our pasture here recently that was, it's pretty patchy. It's on one of the top rocky spots of the farm. There's not a whole lot of depth there as far as the, uh, the topsoil goes. And when we came back around to graze it, there wasn't a whole lot of regrowth there from our first two or three laps. So on that section, I just hand broadcasted some clover and perennial ryegrass mix, um, and then unrolled junk hay. And then we turned the cows into it and the cows kind of picked through the junk hay, but they trampled on that hay and the seed and kind of helped plant it. And now it's popping up really nicely. This, this bare junky spot is showing all kinds of new green life right now. Oh, very um, good. From the, from the perennial ryegrass and the clover. So I'm really encouraged by that. And I think uh, if I had to do that again in a pinch, or if I had to encourage somebody else to do something like that, I would say diversity as many, as many different species as you can throw on that, the better it's all going to work out for the soil, for the animals, um, everything in between. The more diversity we can give there, the better. So if I, I think if I had to do that again, I would have I would have splurged and got more species of grass and even some annuals because annuals um, going off on a dog leg here, but annuals are what you notice popping up to cover bare ground first. You know, nature doesn't oh, usually. Yeah 
bounce back first with perennials. Usually they cover with those annuals, get the soil covered. Uh, they're doing some things to the soil, adding their nutrients back in. And then after a, a few seasons is when you see those perennial species kind of popping up. So um, I think Gabe Brown, he's, he's a great example of that. He talks about that where he'll come in and do a whole bunch of annual cover crops just to kind of nuke the soil back to what it needs and then uh, introduce perennials from there. Very good. Now you mentioned Dave Brown? Gabe, Gabe Brown. Fam- Gabe Brown. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I'm not familiar with him right off. He's, he's uh, where's he at? North Dakota. Is that where he's at? He, uh, oh, okay. He, he's the book out Dirt to Soil. Um, but he, Oh, okay. Yeah, super, super good read. I think I'm about halfway through that right now. Um, but he was... I'm a, looking at my bookcase. Yeah. No, I don't have it over there, so... Yeah, that's that's a good one. He just kind of tells his personal story of being a conventional farmer, um, doing all the things that he he went to school and was taught and the whole farming community encouraged. And then uh, just yes. through, I think he said he has like four or five seasons of natural destruction of his crops, you know, from hail and drought and whatever, just five years in a row just kind of knocked him fat, flat on his face. And he had to turn to some other alternatives just to just to keep the farm, just to keep things going. And so, oh, yes, he describes his journey getting away from uh, planting monocultures, not incorporating livestock. Um, he kind of dives into the synthetics uh, inputs, you know, everything like that. And he just kind of explains oh, his yes. journey to regenerative agriculture. And it's it's a great read. Definitely worth your time. Huh. I'm going to have to look it up and and add it to my collection. I hear you. I have, I have so many my, books I want to read. Oh, my my to read list is quite long, but, you know, I enjoy reading books. Yeah. That's where I gain so much knowledge that I don't have time to learn on my own. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and they're so much smarter than I am. I'm just <laughs> here. <laughs> I, I feel the same way. Hey, I'll, I'm glad to benefit from their knowledge and they can they can teach me anything they want. Now, when you you broadcast some of those seeds, you rolled out the hay. Do you normally roll out your hay when you feed your cattle? No, that's a great question. Um, Last year, what we did is we we have an old silage pit on the property that we've never used for silage. It's just been there and it kind of overgrew. So I I claimed it back. And last winter, I fed the cattle on that cement slab for the winter and they had water access. But that just kind of kept them off the pasture. Uh, like I said, it gets it gets really wet in the winter time, and I didn't. Right. I'm always scared of of pugging up the pasture, but I think this year I'm going right. to try to do some bale grazing. Um, I'm going to pick kind of the high spots that need a little bit of love and set the bales out there. And whenever the weather permits, we'll we'll turn the cattle out to go graze the bales where they are. And I, I haven't decided if I'm going to unroll them oh, or leave them whole. I I don't know yet, but this year we're going to experiment some. Oh, yes. I know a lot of people in my area, not necessarily that they do rotational grazing or regenerative agriculture, but they row out their hay. It just makes yeah. the hay go a little bit further. Yeah, uh, We have not done that ourselves mm-hmm. because we figured we've got enough ditches we're trying to fill in. We just feed the cows in the ditches and yep. the waste goes to good use there. But we've talked about like we've got a hay meadow. Like I'd mentioned we had... um belled hay for years and next year we're we're not planning to but that hay meadow you can tell that it needs some nutrients returned to it yeah so we're thinking about rolling out some hay there 
and try and uh, just improve that area just a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. No, I'm with you. I get that. Now you talked about um, you were pretty dry before it started getting wet. Do you do you do anything different when you start getting dry? Well, I I think at that point, as far as grazing is concerned, you have to have to plan your moves around the rest and recovery period. Um, so at that point, I, I kind of have to acknowledge that things are going to bounce back more slowly. You know, the, the moisture is not there for that quick return. So I, I have to start looking ahead to my farm map and figure, okay, you know, starting here is where the dry season kind of kicked into gear. And now I've got to do the math to figure out how to get back there to give that an adequate rest period to bounce back. Um, so we're not cutting that regrowth, you know, coming back too soon or, or stealing from the roots or anything like that, grazing the roots as they call it. Um, so I, I would say that's probably the, the first bit of homework I have to do. And my first reaction is, okay, I gotta, I gotta plan my recovery periods and, and make sure that it's, uh, good yes. to go before I come back to it too soon. Yes. And, and that makes sense. The, the big thing I, I tell people, close your gates. I think that's mm-hmm. from Greg Judy. Don't leave your gates open. Mm-hmm. Yep. yep. Now what, and jumping into gates, what kind of uh, fencing do you have on your place? Perimeter yeah. fencing, the interior fencing? The, the perimeter fencing that I have is just what was there. I didn't put up any perimeter fencing. So on about half the farm, half of our perimeter border on the outside uh, is old existing wooden post. There's some barbed wire left on it. Actually, I've kind of gotten away from installing any barbed wire. Um, but I do as much temporary fencing as possible. I, I don't like being pinned in by permanent gates and openings and crossings. I like to be as flexible as possible. So, uh, my, my weapon of choice there is the reel, the geared reel and the step in posts. Um, and we, we talked before I, I get all my goods from Ken Cove. I have, uh, <laughs> I have a personal connection there. So <laughs> I, uh, I, uh, I get all my stuff from Ken Cove. I like the, the step in posts. A lot of people like the O'Brien step in posts. Um, I have soft enough ground. I can just use the fiberglass posts with the, the pre-built clips. Um, oh, yeah. and anywhere I need to sink a T post just to kind of, make a perimeter or a hard corner. I'll just, I'll just put in a T post with like a lock jaw insulator. Those work really well with twine and going around corner applications. Um, but I will try to do as much temporary fencing as possible. Oh yes. And speaking of King Cove, I just placed another order the other day. Is that right? <laughs> my, my, my wife's going to probably tell me to quit ordering from there. <laughs> I hear you. I hear you. Your shopping cart can fill up pretty quickly when you're, when you start looking around. Oh, it can. Yes. So you use a, a poly braid to move mm-hmm. your cattle around. Uh, you also have codlin sheep. Do you use a poly braid with them or, or what kind of fencing for your sheep? Yeah, I, I started off um, hoping to be Greg Judy, keeping my sheep behind uh, one, one strand of uh, twine, braided twine. I, I had them in a training area where we did that. I started off with like two strands and they stayed put. And then I worked it down to one strand um, and they did fine. But then as soon as I, I turned them out and started trying to keep them with the cattle, uh, they didn't acclimate to the cattle very well. And I think they wanted their own space because I'm, I'm trying to run my yeah. cattle on a pretty, pretty dense uh, 
stalking rate. And I, I don't think that allowed enough room for the sheep. So they kind of uh, would, would go under the wire or go over the single wire and, and go to their favorite spot and hang out. So um, oh, then yeah. I tried, then I tried using reels one section behind the cattle with the sheep. So they had their own space, but they were still in the, the polytwine and they still were Houdinis and, and did their own thing. So now I've reverted to um, the electric net. It's just kind of the, the oh, yes. I, I would love to get to the point where I'm using reels with them. It's just a lot easier to, to navigate and set up and tear down. But for now, the net keeps them contained and it's, it's off my mind. I know they're, I know they're where they oh, right. Um, obviously I electrify that, but honestly, most days I don't know that you would have to, once they, once they kind of get the idea, I think the, the physical and visual sight of the net keeps them contained as long as they have enough to eat. Oh, yes. Now, are you moving them daily for the sheep and the cattle? Or how often are you moving them? Yeah, re so the cattle, I'm, I'm pretty much doing a daily move. Um, weather can dictate that a little bit. And that's that's part of what I'm learning as I go through holistic management. And even last time we spoke, Cal, I was I was pushing the daily move, you know, move every day, move every day. Yes. And we do like frequency um, and, and shorter time spans so that we can, we can maximize that regrowth time. But with holistic management and plan grazing, it allows you a little bit of flexibility to base around all the different circumstances that you encounter. I mean, weather can throw us a curveball and everything else. So my goal with the cattle is to move every day, but sometimes that might fluctuate on just what I'm observing, what I'm seeing, um, room and fill, yes. you know, all that kind of stuff. I'm kind of training my eye to look at the room and, and see what's going on there. Um, so the, the cattle are pretty much on an everyday move. The sheep, what I started doing, if you can, if you can picture it, I, I run long nets on the outside and I kind of make a ladder and then I use short nets on the inside to make the rungs of the ladder. Oh yes. Um, and yeah. doing that, I can, I can give them a space of about two days in each one of those rungs and then just open up a corner oh, okay. of it and they, they go into the next rung and spend two days there. Um, and right now I'm, I'm trying to kind of refigure that in my head so that because um, what that does is, is they lose pace behind the cattle. The cattle start moving away from them quicker than the sheep are getting through that ladder. And what what ends up happening then is by the time the sheep get to some of those later paddocks that the cattle have left, that paddock has started to regrow. And then my sheep are actually regrazing the roots too soon. So, oh, yes. Um, this, this off season, I'm going to spend a little bit of time thinking about how I want to replan that so that I can keep them a little bit closer together. And that is a true rest period that doesn't get hit again in five to 10 days from the sheep, if that makes sense. Oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah, so, so you're going to look at how you can keep them together in one flirt or just maybe rote, graze them closer together if you move the cows and, and the sheep right there close together. Yeah, I, that would be my ultimate goal is to have the flirt and get everybody together and get everybody cooperating. I, I don't know that that's going to be uh, the immediate result. So my my next thought is to just tell myself I have to keep them in the, the paddock behind the cattle, like yesterday's cattle oh, yes. paddock. And I, I like my ladder design because that means I only have to move nets like every six days instead of every day. So that's why oh, I, yeah. I like that, but it's not fitting my holistic context right now um, because I am overgrazing at that point. So 
that's where I tell myself, okay, I, I might have to buck up a little bit and move more nets than I want to, but at least we'll be in the same cycle and we'll be in sync for the regrowth. So it might just, might just have to be, they come up and clean the paddock behind the cattle. Oh yeah. Yeah. Now you also mentioned a few other species. Do you have your, uh, chicken tractor out there? Yeah. You have a portable chicken tractor and the pigs also. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. So the, the chickens, I'm using a hoop pen style. It's not your, it's okay. not your usual Joel Salatin chicken tractor that you see. I kind of opted for the, I think I found the, the build plans on Kentucky university, uh, website. Uh, my dad and I are both tall guys, so we like having the big hoop to be able to walk in, you know, no, no oh, crouching yes. down or anything like that. Um, and so the, the chickens, I'm, for the most part, I'm keeping out on pasture as well as the turkeys. There's some layers that are still in a yard pen near the barn. Um, I'm hoping oh, yes. a goal for next year is that all my poultry are out on grass. None of them are in a confined stationary pen, but everybody's moving. Oh, yes. That's, that's a goal for next year. Um, but they're in hoop pens. They're moving on pasture. I like to put them in those rough spots where they can scratch the surface up and chicken manure is very potent. Like I said, clover's the, oh, first is. Thing. Clover's the first thing that bounces back. So I let them nuke the rough spots and then we move on. Um, and as far as the pigs go, this is my first hand at pigs. I know I didn't grow up around pigs. So I was a little bit apprehensive to turn them out on pasture right away. So right now they're the ones that are, are in the silage pit. Um, they're not out on pasture. Oh, yeah. And what I've been doing there is basically they're my composters. I keep throwing in the oh, organic yes. matter. I give them a new bedding layer of hay once they work through the the other ones. And we're just doing a deep bedding. We're going to keep piling on that organic matter, let them compost it. Um, and then when it comes time to fill freezers for pork, they'll go. And then I'll have this awesome uh, compost bed to spread out on pasture wherever I want it. So that's uh, everybody's out on pasture that I felt comfortable doing and the pigs are right. in confinement, but a, a better version of confinement. You know, we're still trying to stick to natural right. process. Um, it gives them something to root through, which they enjoy. You know, they like to dig through uh, the, yeah, the uh, layers. I, one thing I did not expect from them was that they like to burrow under the hay. Um, oh, yeah. So the first day I, I turned them out in there, you know, there's fresh hay down and everything. I came out the next morning. I was in the pen walking around and I couldn't find a single pig. And I was like, they're they're gone. They got oh, out. No. And then I, I heard them yeah. rustling and they came shooting out of the hay because they had dug their way under the hay, which I again, <laughs> I'm new to pigs. I didn't know that they would do that. But I, was oh, like, yeah. I, I thought for sure they were gone, but they surprised me. Oh, yeah. And that's never a good feeling when you're out no. there and you're like, where are my no. animals? No, <laughs> pigs are not one of those animals you want to have to get back in somewhere. Yes. I've, I've seen some people with some grazing of pigs and different breeds of them. Um, my dad had pigs when I was little, but it wasn't, it was, it was a dirt lot and we slop feed to them. Yeah. Not not very much, not very good for the environment there. Sure, sure. I got you. I got you. We're all learning now. It's a learning curve. Yeah, we are. Um, and and pigs are one of those animals someday I'd like to try again, mm -hmm. but I'm not quite there yet. I understand. I understand. <laughs> now, on your cattle, you have Scottish Highlands. Yes. What went into that decision for you to pick them or go with the Scottish Highlands? 
Right, right. Um, before I had the the Scottish Highlands, I had Herefords, which I think are a great animal. They're they're pretty easy going on lots of different terrain. Um, at the time, these particular Highlands were at a neighboring farm in our area, and the owner needed to to offload them. He he was he was kind of running into some health problems and needed to dump them. And uh, I was I was working with that farm at the time, so I was feeding them every day and had kind of gotten used to them. And I said, well, I'll, oh, yes. I'll, I'll swing in, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll swoop them up. So I, I threw them a number and I, I bought the whole herd at one time, which was 23, I think at the time. And then we had a couple of oh, yes. that, which for 20 acres would pretty well be maxing you out. And, uh, yes. I, uh, so I sold a couple on the hoof and, uh, I butchered a few and then brought the remainder home and kind of, over time cycled out my, my remaining Herefords. I have one Hereford steer still in the group. He's, he's on the, uh, freezer program for a springtime there. He'll finish out. Oh yes. Um, but I, I've always thought the Highlands were really cool creatures. Um, and w- we spoke last time, Cal, and I mentioned just the marketability of them. They're, they're such a unique animal that, uh, I'm kind of trying to build off a of social media business wise and people just love seeing oh, yes. They just love seeing those shaggy cows with the long horns. They can't get enough of it. So it definitely works to my advantage. They're so unique. They're so picturesque and, and people just love it. Um, my other my other favorite thing about them is they are not picky foragers. They'll they'll make the most of anything. They will browse. They, they're taking leaves off of shrubs and trees and all kinds oh, of yes. stuff. Um, and I think... I think previously I, I would have described them as hardy. They're very hardy creatures, especially oh, yes. for, for a northern winter. Um, I, I just spent some time with Daniel Griffith at uh, Tim Shell Wildland. He's he's putting me through my my holistic management training, and that was one thing that we covered was the word hardy. He was saying that we they don't really acknowledge the word hardy because um, hardy indicates that something has adapted to adverse conditions, which I would say Highlanders are, are pretty hardy, right? But if, oh, yes. if I take those Highlanders out of my northern winters and put them into your summers, I'm not sure that I would still describe them as hardy, you know, a di- different kind of hardy. Right, so, right. Um, they're, they're very capable of handling our climate here, and I think they're, they thrive really well. And they're, they're just very hands-off. They don't need much regulation or assistance, anything like that. Oh, yeah. Well, they are my wife's favorite breed of cattle. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so, so I make sure whenever you post any pictures on Instagram, I show her the pictures. <laughs> well, of course, I appreciate she's that. like, we need one. <laughs> I appreciate that. We we had that uh, that grayish white calf that was born this year, and I'm super stoked. Oh, about yes. It. He's he's a bull calf, and I left him intact. And uh, the other day, I got a a hand on his head, and he is growing some nice horns. They're probably inch and a half long right now. You just can't see it under his uh, shaggy hair. Oh yes, yep, yeah. He's very pretty. <laughs> Thank you. Now, on your uh, sheep, you have codlins. What yeah? What drove that decision to pick them? Yeah, um, I, I wanted uh, hair sheep. I didn't want to get into shearing and, and worrying about wool. So hair sheep are going to kind of eliminate that problem for you. And the the Katahdins are um, probably one of those leading breeds for most operations and producers in the U.S. When I was kind of doing my research, it was between maybe the Croy or the the Katahdins and uh, Dorper sheep. Are Dorpers hair sheep as well? Are they also hair yes, sheep? Yes, they are. Yeah. Yes. 
Um, and I, I was, I started looking around on Craigslist trying to find some, some hair sheep. And then I remembered that one of the, one of the, the Mennonite guys in our communities had a whole, whole flock of them, like probably hundreds or so, you know, and, uh, so I was able to drive three minutes away and, and snag my first couple ewes for breeding. And, uh, I just kind of went with it from there. So I knew I wanted hair sheep and I had heard, heard good things about them. And so I just kind of went that direction. We have a flock of codlins and I would like to manage them a little bit more, but they're very hands off. I mean, yeah. they, they stay fat and they don't respect any of my fences, but that's, that's a different topic. I hear you. Before we get to our famous four questions, you mentioned um, your holistic management training you're doing. Can you yeah. tell us a little bit more about what you're doing there? Oh, man, I'd, I'd love to. Yeah. So I'm working hand in hand with the Savory Institute. Um, and I'll, I'll mention this here in the, in, the, in the big four questions there. But Alan Savory's book, Holistic Management, um, was something that kind of sent my head spinning when I read it in regard to grazing and regenerative agriculture. That's, that's kind of the path I'm, I'm headed on. I went ahead in the regenerative, uh, tract and, um, I'm, t I'm taking program through the Savory Institute to become an accredited professional or like a consultant, if you will, for regenerative operations to kind of help them do, oh, yes. help them do ecological monitoring to say, Hey, we actually are regenerating our soil. And so, um, Alan Savory has a great way of putting things in perspective, saying that we want to manage for the whole, not just a simple problem through reductionist perspective. So reductionist perspective would be, I have goldenrod on my farm. I view that as an issue and therefore I take whatever means necessary to eliminate goldenrod. So I, you, you have this big problem and through reductionist mentality, we just reduce it down to this is the cause. This is a solution. I'm going to, I'm going to spray my right. field with XYZ to get rid of goldenrod. And so when you start looking at that holistically, you say, okay, well, I'm not going to, I'm not going to manage for what I don't want. I'm going to manage for what I do want. And what I do want is healthy, productive, beneficial forages. And over time, yeah. as, as my management heads in that direction, I should probably notice a decrease of that goldenrod. It's going to settle in, in the background because my soils are getting healthier. My, my cattle, my livestock are, interacting with the forages more efficiently. We're building our soil organic matter. The, the soil life is, is more unified and in community together. And so the, the big staples for holistic management as far as grazers are concerned is the water cycle. We want to have an efficient water cycle. We want to maximize our mineral cycle. So what that might look like is uh, tighter density, getting that manure concentration even it would look like knocking down any standing or dead vegetation back to the soil to uh, provide soil cover and so that the soil can absorb those nutrients again as things decompose it's looking at community dynamics i mentioned diversity earlier the more diverse we can be that the healthier the soil is going to be that comes into play with yes. species you know the, mo the more species we can put out there the more different touches the soil is getting you know this this plant puts this back in oh, the soil yeah. this plant pulls this out and um that's where you have your monoculture versus mixed uh cover crops like like gabe brown would would discuss um, but that also lends itself to the livestock and that's why i I kind of just dove in blindly with multi-species grazing because I just knew that I couldn't, me me grazing the farm the same way year after year with just cattle, 
is basically a monoculture grazing style. Oh, yes. I, I have one kind of species, one kind of species having one kind of interaction with the land. And if I want to create healthier soil and benefit everybody involved, the more species I can bring into that, the better. And uh, so that that's kind of your community dynamics. And then just understanding energy flow. Yeah, that's an interesting view about the species. I hadn't really thought about the the monoculture in the aspect of what we're using to harvest the grass with. So that's an interesting viewpoint with that. Yeah, it, it is kind of a paradigm thing when you think of it that way. And I, the first time I, I forget, I forget the first person that kind of put it in that perspective for me, but when you hear it, it kind of clicks, you know, you're like, okay, so if, if my livestock are the harvesters or the pruners and I take them through the same lap around the farm several times a year, the land's getting hit the same way all the time. Like there's, there's no difference there. You know, there's no variety. There's no dynamics. Oh yeah. And that's where bringing in the poultry, bringing in the sheep. And, and as I get more courageous, I'll bring in the pigs and let them do some, some really deep soil massage, you know? Um, yeah. So we, we want to create as much diversity as we can really. Oh yes. And sorry about interrupting you. I just, I just no. thought that's interesting. I hadn't thought about it that way. No, you're good. You're good. Yeah. I, I, Again, I can't take credit for for many of these thoughts. I'm I'm just learning as I go. But uh, that was a revolutionary thought. And then just just the other staples of holistic management kind of lend themselves to understanding soil life, the soil food web, and photosynthesis. Because basically, as a grazer, we're all in the soil business and we're all in the solar business. You know, we we have yes. to understand how these principles work if we want to produce better forages, if we want to have healthy soils. And if we want to be profitable, honestly, you know, if we want to be profitable, we have to understand how photosynthesis interacts with plants, how the soil interacts with itself, how the livestock play a part in that and all of the above. Yeah, all, all that sounds good. And, and I'm excited for you for your journey. And yeah. I think you'll learn lots there. <laughs> Thank and you. You have to come back and tell me more, you know, just based upon our conversations. I had not read Alan Savory's book, Holistic Management Handbook, and I've started it okay. now. I went out and ordered it, and yeah. I've started it, and it's interesting. It's a little bit different view than than I've used before. Yeah. So I'm I'm interested diving into it deeper. Yeah, it's it's a dense read. He he throws a lot at you, and a lot of it, it is a lot of it is going to challenge what you thought you've already learned. You know, and you, you're going to have to rethink about some things and. Hopefully, we're all open to to learning some different perspectives and challenging things that we thought we had squared away. But it's definitely worth your time as a read. I'd encourage anybody to to pick it up and, and give it a look. So, and let's go ahead and move into our famous four yeah. questions we ask of every guest. Guest, what's your favorite grazing grass related uh, book or resource? Yeah. I, I would say, obviously, with that lead in, I, I would have to go with Holistic Management by Alan Savory is my go-to book. Um, it, it covers a lot of those bases as far as building soil, grazing, timing your rest periods. Um, it even goes into financial planning and things like that at the end of the book. Um, so just oh, uh, yes. overall, just textbook knowledge of grazing and the, the soil life and photosynthesis that we're all connected to. And I would say the other, the other resource that I'm enjoying, a couple months ago, I started my subscription to Stockman Grass Farmer. Oh, yes. It seems like uh, there's a couple articles in every issue that I'm excited to read, and the other ones I'll just kind of leaf through. 
but even just leafing through them, right. I, they suck me in. Like, I, I just, I just love it. I think, Oh yes. I love the content and that if, if you're going to sign up for any kind of magazine or periodical as a grazer, I, I don't think you can go wrong with Stockman grass farmer. What tool could you not live without on your farm? Oh man. Um, I, I've, I've thought about this question cause I knew it was coming up and I, I have a few, uh, my Leatherman multi-tool is on my belt every oh, yeah. single day. I use it for all the things it was intended for and a lot of others that it was not intended for. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Very useful tool. Um, but other than that, I, I would say my portable grazing stuff. If, if you gave me a geared reel with twine on it and 10 step in posts, I can do a lot with that. I, I can work with that. That makes a huge difference on our operation. Um, temporary fencing is huge. And besides that, I would say the five gallon bucket is like the most universal tool. You can, oh yeah. You could need or want. Yeah. Never have enough five gallon buckets, mm -hmm. just even for chairs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So what's something you would uh, share or tell with a, a young farmer just getting started? Yeah, this I, I'm glad to to revisit this question with you, Cal, from the last time we talked. Because initially, I the first time I said I wouldn't be afraid of the daily move. Um, starting off, that was something that everybody talked about was moving every day, moving every day, and that was a goal. And I was trying to get there, and and eventually I did. Uh, but now through my holistic management courses, I'm I'm kind of learning that that shouldn't be our goal. You know, rotational grazing in the grand scheme of things is like the cello in this orchestra and in operating in holistic management makes you the, the maestro, you know, like you have this whole symphony oh, yes. at your fingertips. Rotational grazing is just part of it. Um, so I, I wouldn't push the daily move as the end all be all as I, as I probably previously thought, I would say your time will not be wasted learning and understanding soil food web, soil life and photosynthesis if you understand how to build soil take care of your water cycle your mineral cycle your diversity and the energy flow from photosynthesis you can't be stopped if if you don't acknowledge those principles there's plenty of ways that you can screw up but if you pay attention to those very biological staples of what we do you're only going to improve and get better as you go. So that that's what I would say. Pay attention to your biological staples, water cycle, mineral cycle, community good. dynamics, energy flow. Very good. Where can others find out more about you? Uh, I'm on social media mostly is the main platform there on Instagram and Facebook as Mac Farms. Uh, I don't have an existing website or anything, but uh, I, I do post a lot and I try to keep updates, uh, especially on Instagram stories and things like that. So Instagram, Facebook, Mac Farms. Very good, Eli. Really enjoyed our conversation today. Thank you me for too. being a guest. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Cal. It's been really fun. You've been listening to the Grazing Grass Podcast, helping grass farmers produce forages for livestock. I really hope you enjoyed today's conversation. I know I did. Thank you for listening. And if you found something useful, Please share it. Share it on your social media. Tell your friends. Get the word out about the podcast. Helps us grow. If you happen to be a grass farmer and you'd like to share about your journey, go to grazinggrass.com and click on Be Our Guest. Fill out the form and I'll be in touch.
We appreciate your support by sharing our episodes and telling your friends about it. You can also support our show by buying our merch. We get a little bit back from that. Another way to support the show is by becoming a Grazing Grass Insider. Grazing Grass Insiders enjoy bonus content, monthly Zooms, and discounts. You can visit the website, grazinggrass.com, click on support, and they'll have the links there. Also, if you haven't left us a review, please do. It really helps us as people are searching for podcasts. And I was just checking them. And we do not have very many reviews for 2024. So if you haven't left us a review, please do. Until next time, keep on grazing grass.